0: A brand new sound for your Sunday morning. The only one who could ever teach me. Introducing the Reverend A. R. Bernard of the Christian Cultural Center. Was the son of a preacher man. And Rabbi Joseph Petzny of Religion on the Line. The
1: only one who could ever teach me.
0: Now on seventy-seven WABC, the Rev and the Rabbi,
2: where faith matters. Good morning, I'm Rabbi Joseph Tosnick. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, I looked at the MLB standings, Boston in first place, the Yankees in. In last place, you, you had to go there. No, no, right? I'm, uh, just, but being the compassionate, go there. compassionate soul that I am, I'm here. I'm yeah, here to yeah. console people. I'm here to comfort yeah. people. Um, but it's <laughs> look, I recognize it's the beginning of the season. Let me enjoy the moment. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, it. It. you all you New Yorkers. He's a Boston fan. Yeah. Just keep that in mind yeah. next time you vote <laughs> for him. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, uh, yesterday in synagogues, on the Sabbath, Jewish Sabbath, we read about holiness. And all of our traditions speak of holiness. And the question I raise with you is, what does it mean when you say he's a holy person, she's a holy person? What does the word holy mean? And interestingly, the Torah is very specific. Uh, Honest weights, respect the elderly, treat people equally. Holiness is not some concept up in the heavens. It's something that has to be concretized here on earth. And I think sometimes we think of holy people as apart from everybody else. But you and I, you know, we have those meetings with the cardinal, and he begins with that psalm God is in the midst of the city. Hmm. That's where holiness yeah. is found too.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we've got these distorted notions of holiness. And for us as human beings to be holy, we have to go up in a mountain, become a monk somewhere and be totally separated. It does speak of otherness, beginning with the otherness of God, but then it extends to the otherness of those who submit themselves to God, because they begin to develop a way of thinking, a comprehensive way of seeing life that informs their words, actions, motives, thoughts, attitudes. Um, so holiness, and I like how you say it. Uh, it it's what? Come up a little higher. Stand, stand up. a
2: little higher. Get on. You know, we, as I said, our tradition is when you say the word holy, we uh, lift ourselves up a little. The soles of our feet, you're, you're a little bit higher. But I, I think back, Abraham, negotiating with God, don't say, don't uh, destroy the cities if there are 50 righteous people in the midst mm-hmm. of the city. Not, you know, isolating themselves from everybody else. Righteous in the midst of the city, you can be a religious person, and you can, uh, you know, interact with people on a regular basis and still maintain your holiness.
1: So, see so, so that brings a question to mind because in Protestantism. We call it sanctification. It mm-hmm. is the process that you go through towards holiness or holier life. And there are those who think that it's instantaneous once you come into uh, Christianity. There are those, uh, like myself, who subscribe to a progressive sanctification over time as you commit yourself uh, to that process. And there are those that think it'll never happen until some future time. What what is you what's your
2: tradition's position so, on this process that we go through? Years ago, uh, I remember listening to Rabbi Harold Kushner, who wrote a number of books, you know, when bad things happen to good people and, uh, mm, yeah, you know, yeah, suffered a yeah, uh, tragic loss of his, his son who was very young at the time with the illness of progeria. And he said, what's the definition of a good Jew? The definition of a good Jew is one who seeks to be a better Jew. And to me, when you spoke of that, what, progressive sanctification? sanctification. That, yeah. It's that rung by rung. It's not instantaneous. It's the desire to be better. It's the desire to recognize we're not perfect, we're flawed, but we can be better. And that, to me, is how this ladder of holiness, the Jacob's dream, you know, on the ground and ascending into right. the heavens, that, to me, is a, a concept of holiness. So I'm interviewing you today.
1: So listen, uh what what do you say when a person makes a genuine commitment to their faith, they subscribe to whatever faith in your case Judaism, and yet they struggle. They mm-hmm. struggle with addictions, they struggle uh in reflecting holiness and in living out those values consistently. And yet they they are sincerely committed to their faith. How do you explain that in
2: your faith? Can you I that? Can I share a story with you that I think is fascinating. A rabbi asked his students, it's the Sabbath. You're walking down the street and all of a sudden you look down and there's a wallet with money in it. What do you do? It's the Sabbath. And one student says, well, it's the Sabbath. You just, no, no, no. I I don't touch it. I stay away from it. The rabbi says, well, not exactly the answer I was looking for. The next student says, well, I could use the money. I, I you know, I could give a little to charity, my family. i make an exception. I'd pick up the wallet and take it. The rabbi says, no, no, that's not the, the, you know, what I'm looking for. The third student says, you know what, rabbi? I would really struggle. Do I take it? Do I not take it? What's the right thing to do under these circumstances? He says, that's the answer I'm looking for. Wow. The li- right? The life beautiful. is a struggle. Right. Life has has its setbacks, as we know. And therefore, uh, we all can look and say, uh, let's try. Let's try to improve who we are and what we do. Uh, And and I think that to me is the the real path uh, to becoming holy. Well, you, just,
1: you just helped a lot of people out there, you know, in our listening audience, because there are people of faith who struggle. Yeah, You know, I'm, I'm doing a funeral later today with a very famous uh, uh, artist mm-hmm. and, you know, they, this individual publicly identified uh, with their Christian faith, but uh, their lifestyle, it, it's difficult to reconcile that lifestyle with that profession of faith. You know, and, and, you know, I'm going to tackle it uh, during the, the funeral mm-hmm. services. But it's very
2: real. You know, people, people wrestle through. You're right. We, we struggle. We all struggle. And we're going to talk uh, with someone today who's faced challenges in his life and uh, has emerged, you know, uh, victorious in many places. And he admits to his setbacks. And we're talking about the 55th governor of the state of New York, David Patterson, who always has something to share with us. So stay tuned. On we'll be right back. 77
3: WABC. Sinai Chapels provides compassionate care to New York's Jewish community. Conveniently located in Fresh Meadows, Queens, every funeral detail is handled by an attentive professional staff according to each family's personal and religious preferences. Sinai staff is at the chapel for you, 24 hours, 7 days a week. Sinai Chapels is committed to your health and safety and offers carefully planned and socially distanced services at their modern chapel or area cemeteries. Sinai has developed Zoom programs for live stream services, shiva, and consultation. Sinai Chapels offers pre-need plans to relieve families of making arrangements at a difficult time. Sinai's pre-need plans offer savings and are 100% government-backed. For more information, please call Sinai Chapels or visit JewishFunerals.com. That's JewishFunerals.com. Sinai Chapels in Fresh Meadows, Queens. Providing compassionate care for four generations.
0: Where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi. 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Rabbi Joseph Potasnik
2: And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, we have the honor i speaking today with the 55th governor of the state of New York, David A. Patterson. And let me tell you this, you know, people prepare to run for office two years in advance or sometimes a year in advance. This man prepared for like 20 minutes to become governor. Of the state of New York. That,
4: that yeah. was about it, Rabbi. <laughs> about 20 minutes. And then, uh, and then I found out about all the staff members that I had who knew about it before I did. That didn't help either.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it was quite... You know what? But you stabilized uh, the situation. I remember that people felt... You know, we have somebody in place uh, who knows what he's doing, who's been in politics for for many years, and you're a trusted figure. Uh, So we were very grateful that you were able to assume that position. Welcome to the show. I'm going to
1: disagree with you up front, Rabbi, because he didn't have 20 minutes. You know, we prepare all of our lives for opportunities that come. And I will say that he's been preparing all of his life. And that's why within 20 minutes, he just had to make a decision to realize what just happened
2: and go to work. And yeah. that's what he did. You know, that's true, by the way. I People say, how long did it take you to prepare that sermon? I said, uh, about five years. You know, because <laughs> yeah. whatever we do, we're always preparing. That's true. Absolutely. So, all yeah. right. So you know, it wasn't a big deal then, Governor, that you had 20 minutes to uh, to go to the uh, state house. You've been preparing all your life, so it wasn't such a big thing for you.
4: It was 20 minutes
2: extra. <laughs> <laughs> all right, go. Governor. Uh, so many issues to discuss. Obviously, the Floyd verdict. I want to get your take on uh, the verdict and the reaction to it. What you felt during the trial and right after the trial.
4: Well, what really pleased me about the Floyd verdict was that not only the jury who heard all the testimony and uh, forty-nine witnesses and and you know just inexorable uh, note taking that they did and conversations that they had before they came to their conclusion, but around the country, people in law enforcement, people of very conservative ideology, they could see on a video what happened in 9 minutes and 29 seconds. Mm -hmm. And although it had to be very difficult for a lot of people who normally would have taken the side of the police officer, they saw what they saw and they stuck to it. And I think that um, that is a noble gesture, even though They may have known that it was right. It was still a gesture because we've got to move ourselves in this society from just taking the side that uh, all the people we're friends with are on, as opposed to looking at a situation and coming to an analysis. And so, for example, another police officer in the Minneapolis area in a split-second decision picked the wrong weapon and fired and killed a 21-year-old African-American male. But if you watch that video, you can actually see how shocked mm-hmm. and and flustered the officer is and the remorse that she showed. I don't think anybody would have taken out a gun on purpose and shot someone and then did this act. Mm-hmm. There was nothing in her background that demonstrated that she had any of those feelings. And so... We have to look at that just as objectively. And I thought more than usual after this decision that the um, that uh, people had very reasonable points of view, which usually is not the case. And the um, the uh, pr- the uh, pr- protests that really not protests, but the gatherings afterward were very positive, um, Uh, very religious in a a lot of senses and and very moral, uh, thankful and uh, celebrating that the system worked in this case. Usually you have people who they're never satisfied. If the Floyd attacker is convicted, now it's going to be, well, it's too bad. They didn't do it for this one or that one or that kind of thing. And maybe it is, but you cannot be an advocate for anything and always be angry. Mm-hmm. There has to be a moment of some, uh, you know, uh, some penance over the fact that what you thought needed to happen actually occurred.
1: You know, that, Governor, there are those who will say that their objectivity has been worn down to a ...point that they're left with nothing but skepticism because of the history, the past injustices, and the failure to hold one. Because he's not reflective of all uh, law enforcement, you know, uh, uh, Derek Chauvin, but of one individual who perpetrates such a heinous crime uh, against humanity, essentially. It was against the human dignity of this person, uh, George Floyd. But they're so worn down, Governor, that I spoke to people and they they were hoping for justice. But in the back of their mind, they were also preparing for injustice, for a, yes. a, a not guilty verdict. You know, so it, it was it and, was it was a tough place to be in as a society.
4: Right. And there were shrill cries, uh, some of them that it should have been first degree murder. Well, the fact is, this man is going to get either 15 to 25 years or 25 to 40 years. I don't think we have to worry about how many years he's going to spend. He's going to pay uh, considerably for what he's done. And then there were those who said, well, if uh, Floyd had not resisted arrest, the whole thing wouldn't have happened in the first place. Uh, That's probably true. Floyd was guilty, would have been charged not only with the uh, stolen check issue, but he also would have been charged with resisting arrest. Mm -hmm. However... We have rules as to what happens when someone resists arrest and at what point they're in uh, custody. And uh, right here on WABC, uh, about uh, four days ago, Commissioner Kelly was on with with me and John Katsimatidis, and he said, once you pretty much handcuff a defendant, uh, that's game over. You know, you shouldn't have any trouble uh, getting them where they need to go. You don't need to be sitting on their neck anymore or any." Thing like that to to get the handcuffs on, you might have to do a few things. And so here is the uh, police commissioner uh, who is normally on the side of the accused, and but he's always been a straight shooter, and I thought always been very objective, and he felt that way as well.
2: So my question is this: the word objectivity is you know something that's very important. However, it's rare to see. How do we get to a point where? We are, you know, are angry when someone is is treated the way Floyd was murdered. But how do we also get angry when a cop gets shot and killed? In other words, you know, one life we have to value life, regardless of the side of the equation. When a wrong is committed, you know, the critics should come together with the cops and say this was this was wrong as well. I remember Rev, you and I, we visited with the the Ramos and the and the Lou families. Uh, when those cops were killed, we went with the with the, uh, the cardinal, mm-hmm. and, and I I just wish we heard the outcry as loud then when cops got murdered, Governor. How do we reach that point? Well, I think
4: that certainly in New York City that the police department is monumentally uh, more uh, in in a with a unity with the uh, organizations that they have in the neighborhood that. Uh, work with the police, the police councils. Uh, We had one in the 24th precinct when I was a state senator, and we got to hear what they go through, and um, you know, I have, I feel always respected the police. They are overworked, underpaid, and they rightly do inherit, in my opinion, the pedestal that the public uh, puts them on because they risk their lives every moment. I mean, you have situations where a simple car stop because someone's uh, uh, tail light is off, and all of a sudden it turns into a shootout. That's what police officers go through. So I'm, <clears throat> uh, I think it's just a matter of exposure. The more people can see what others go through, mm. uh, I, I think would help. I mean, I, as governor, had to go to uh, about four or five in that time, uh, funerals for a police officer. And it was just so sad. And it was just so painful. Um, and, and the families live with it forever. And you've got to understand that that is an unneeded burden that they had. After all the fear they had that something would happen to their loved one, something actually did.
1: You know, you're listening to 77 W.A.B.C., the Reverend, the rabbi. And our guest, of course, is uh, New York State Governor uh, David Patterson. Uh, Governor, let me ask you, you know, police morale, police suicides have have been, uh, have been spiked in the last two years in, in New York City. Uh, The morale has taken a hit because of them feeling, uh, you know, victimized by the public and those who are protesting something that needs to be protested. But the way it's been directed at all police, uh, that has become a problem. Uh, How do you respond to that?
4: Well, you know, people have really not adjusted to how serious suicide is in our society And how it is really an illness uh, that can be prevented in some situations, but not in others. There is a very well-known person in New York served on the Court of Appeals. She was uh, appointed to the Appellate Division by myself and then to the Court of Appeals by Governor Andrew Cuomo. And uh, she went to Barnard when I was going to Columbia. So I knew her for 40 years and she committed suicide. And <clears throat> what was maybe even more shocking than the fact that that happened is that when we had a class reunion later that year, I'd say 95% of the people, you know, I'm talking about people who are educated in the uh, highest institutions of learning in this country, denying that it was a suicide. Some of them must've thrown her in the water. Somebody must've done this. Somebody must've done that. And, um, it was it was it was just shocking to me. And I think also the individuals who wind up being victimized, they don't think that they can tell anybody. And police officers, they're tough. You know, mm. they go through a lot that they don't mm-hmm. go home and tell their families and they don't go home and tell their families about this. And they've they've got to understand uh, your life is at risk when you start having those feelings. You've got to talk to someone. And we've, we've just got to get that message out. We know who the officers are on the force. We just hope that they're listening because okay. uh, the numbers are piling up and it's it's unconscionable.
2: Governor, we uh, in the synagogue, and I'm sure this is true in Christian tradition, we have a prayer that says, guard my tongue from speaking evil. And... We often we often say that life oh, and death. Oh, in the
4: uh, Christian religion, we we don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> so we, you mean you didn't take that from us? Yeah, uh, you uh, took everything else. Uh, you didn't take that. Uh, uh, no, but Governor,
1: anything saying, anything from anything from our Old Testament, <laughs> the Hebrew scriptures, he doesn't want to give us any credit for. It, so that's the
2: way it is. <laughs> you were saying, <laughs> Rabbi? But you know, guard guard my tongue from evil. Life and death are in the hands of the tongue because you can destroy people uh, verbally. And we, we hear and see that uh, on different sides. We see politicians who say the most irresponsible things. Here you have the judge in the Floyd case reprimanding Maxine Waters uh, and anyone else who says something stupid and inflammatory. You see it in the demonstrations, uh, you know, the, the signs that are held up. Uh, fry them and, you know, kill the police, whatever it says. But this irresponsible behavior in, in language. You know, what we say in the sanctuary, very often we don't see out in the street. And I don't know how we bring that message home in a more stringent fashion.
4: It's getting more and more prolific. There's a heightened tension. Uh, you know, I travel by car. Often uh, my wife Mary drives me. And there are these people who fly up and down the roads, particularly during the pandemic. I think people are acting out their fears, their anxiety, and many respects, their inability to deal with their own prejudices and um, frustrations about their plot in life. And that's really a shame that uh, you've got so many angry people out there and it's now starting to go over the line with starting to manifest itself in actions that they take against others, which is uh, just horrible. Also, we have uh, really no cure right now for the ever-growing cases of mental illness that are walking up and down the streets, attacking people indiscriminately and without any cause. And this city is becoming a much more difficult place to live than it was even as soon as perhaps
3: six seven years ago sinai chapels provides compassionate care to new york's jewish community conveniently located in fresh meadows queens every funeral detail is handled by an attentive professional staff according to each family's personal and religious preferences sinai staff is at the chapel for you 24 hours seven days a week Sinai Chapels is committed to your health and safety and offers carefully planned and socially distanced services at their modern chapel or area cemeteries. Sinai has developed Zoom programs for live stream services, shiva, and consultation. Sinai Chapels offers pre-need plans to relieve families of making arrangements at a difficult time. Sinai's pre-need plans offer savings and are 100% government-backed. For more information, please call Sinai Chapels or visit jewishfunerals.com. That's jewishfunerals.com. Sinai Chapels in Fresh Meadows, Queens. Providing compassionate care for four generations.
0: Reverend A. Gennard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, the Rev and the Rabbi, where faith matters. 77 WABC and WABCradio.com.
1: You know, governor, uh, let, let's let's talk change. Eleven police shootings in Minneapolis with no convictions. I'm talking about uh, from the Minneapolis Police Department with no convictions except for one black officer who was convicted for shooting a, a white woman. The Department of Justice is launching now an investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department for systemic racialized policing practices. Is this the right direction?
4: Well, I never think it's the wrong direction to investigate something. Um, I'm sure some of those shootings and probably the majority of them are justified. But in those circumstances, and, yeah, there are not that many of them, but look at what they do to our society. You know, in Mm -hmm. other words, people uh, get shot and killed every day. But if a a major figure in a government, like a president or uh, a, a congress member gets shot uh, it, it's a reflection on what's happening to our society. It's, you're attacking the institution as much as the individual. And so th- these police shootings um, are reminiscent of a time when there wasn't even any investigation. Um, my father, who served in the legislature and was a deputy mayor and uh, secretary of state to, to Hugh Carey, told me a story on uh, in august of 2013 about eight months before his death about how he was coming from baseball practice and he got off the subway and this police officer in front of about 40 people asked him where he got the baseball glove and he held the glove up to show that he had his name on it and the officer pistol whipped him Mm -hmm. he wound up in the hospital and the naacp came this is 1942 he's 16 Mm -hmm. years old the naacp came and wanted to file a lawsuit against the New York City Police Department. And his father, my grandfather, told them, after you file your lawsuit, who's going to protect my son in the street? It was believed that a lawsuit will, would promulgate another attack against him. We've come wow. a long, long way yeah. since then. We've come a long, long way. But what shocked me is if my father, who lived to the age of 87, if he had lived one year less, I would never have known the story. He told me the story in reaction to the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the Trayvon Martin shooting.
2: Mm. That was the great Basil Patterson uh, many of us remember. So, Governor, let's talk on a local level now. Uh, I know that you're always in the thick of things. I know uh, you're organizing a debate. And we spoke about defunding the police. And you you had a funny comment. He said, when do the Democrats ever defund anything? Uh, (laughs) But, you know, a city needs to be safe. We can't grow as a city if people are afraid to travel on the trains, walk down the streets. And you see the increased hate attacks. You see the uh, attacks on, you know, these innocent people uh, going to work, going home. What do you think an appropriate response needs to be? Defund the police? Is that an answer?
4: Well, I'm going to spend the rest of today and uh, into next week now, Monday, maybe regretting I'm about to say this, but I always liked the broken windows policy. I think small arrests lead to evidence that uh, can be the catalyst for larger arrests. Defunding the police is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard because even when the police are acting improperly, you need training. You're going to need more resources, not less. And as I said, we're Democrats. We throw money at problems. We never actually <laughs> defund anything that we can't uh, spend more money on. And uh, But it, in all seriousness, there's a lot that can be done. I uh, grew up in Long Island and then wound up living in Harlem. And uh, I was sent there because it was the public school would allow a disabled student to go to, to the public schools in in Hempstead. But the reason I point this out is they started a system where the, when the police would come in to our districts and I was a state senator, they'd come by and visit the local elected officials. I used to sit with the police and the first time, the thing I would tell them is I'm originally from Long Island. And I used to hear these things about Harlem. And some of them were true, that when I moved here, I just <laughs> knew that I would stay indoors most of the time. And when I came here, I found a completely different neighborhood than the one I thought I was going to see. So please take it from me, a fellow Long Islander. Say hello to the people walking down the street. The people in Harlem talked to everybody. Before they had cell phones, people just walk down, up and down the street and just talk to people talk to you even when they didn't know you. Hey, nice day, isn't it? You know, it's just kind of Mm. just part of the charm of the community. But I think part of it is that many of the officers don't live in the neighborhoods that they serve. And the more they get to know those neighborhoods, the more comfortable they will be. And then the community becomes very comfortable and very happy. We need the police. Crime is usually higher in these places. We love when the police uh, do it the right way, which is almost all the time.
1: I think what you're saying, uh, Governor, resonates with people in uh, communities where they've experienced a higher number of fatalities at the hands of police. People in those communities, all right, they are asking for more police presence. They want law enforcement uh, policing. I think the, the tough thing for them is the fear that on the other side of that equation is over policing, uh, them, you know, not being sensitized, uh, sometimes because they don't come from the community, but sometimes there are officers who are from the community, who are familiar with the community. But still, you know, the way they police, uh, is, is, is not fair across the boards. So, right. when we talk about police reform, changes that we need to make, we had a great conversation with uh, with the police commissioner, uh, uh, and we talked about transparency, policy changes, community relationship building, uh, training. Um, what What are your thoughts on this?
4: I think that asked and answered, <laughs> Reverend. You, I told <laughs> you basically. There isn't much more to say. <laughs> there is just um, a, you know an effort, and, and I think there there. Uh, the other thing is that I think. We all need to take a step back from some of these strong, passionate feelings that we have and think about the fact that we're living in a world with people who, in their own way, have probably come to the same conclusions that we have, but they're just on the same side, the other side. Um, You know, you just have to, um, to recognize you're going to need a police force. There are people now talking about getting rid of the police. When, 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 when we get rid of the police, wherever they go, that's where I'm going to go. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. Back, back to Long Island for you.
4: But
1: that's, but you know what, that's, that, we forget, you know. Civilization, human civilization advances, as you know, Governor. You're well read. But human nature remains the same. So even if we abolish the official formal police department, all right, there's going to be a need for law and enforcement of that law within the communities. So let's say, yeah, and they're going to emerge, and you're still, because of human nature, going to be faced with the possibility of someone over-policing.
2: Even so, though they come from but, the community. But Rev, <laughs> Governor, we got candidates running for mayor. So many candidates. Does any candidate say, I believe in the broken windows policy? Does anybody say, we want more police, not less police? I mean, is it is this how you win an election? You campaign to the left, then you govern from the center? I mean, you've been in politics for a while. Uh, and you begin to lose faith in politicians who... Tell you what they think you want to hear, not what you need to hear.
4: Yeah, I think that uh, also that uh, primaries, the difficulty with them is the more extreme voters vote in the primary. And so you have to get that vote. And to get it, you have to say a lot of extreme things. And right now, that really clashes with what we need in our society is to bring people together and not be as adversarial as we are.
2: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I would almost, uh, I know you got to go soon. Looking back at your political career, could you talk about what made you proud an accomplishment that made you so proud and maybe go the other way and talk about something you wish you didn't do or you could have done?
4: Yeah. I, I wish. Uh, I didn't appoint myself to the United States Senate when I had a chance <laughs> to get out.
2: <laughs> I was waiting for the call myself. I was so, uh,
4: I thought um, one of the big mistakes that I made um, when when I was in government is that <clears throat> the staff I was working with was the staff of Governor Spitzer, and Governor Spitzer's staff, their whole thing was to humiliate the legislature. And, uh, and have the newspapers write about it. And they were really playing off that. And what they did was they totally alienated the legislature. So mm-hmm. when I needed to call the legislature back in the summer of uh, 2008 to address the problems that the rest of the country would figure out in September, which is that our whole uh, national and state budgets were totally out of balance, I was kind of commanding them to come back sort of the way the speeches were written with the way they were written for Spitzer and I realized that what I should have done was congratulated them for coming back because we did cut two billion dollars off of uh, our out year budget gap and they did do what I asked them to do and I should have responded by treating them more civilly than I did and I think that led to other confrontations I had with them and frankly some of them were my fault
2: Well, when do you ever hear anybody say it's my fault? And what are you proud of?
4: Well, I'm really proud of the fact that I was able to raise the number of minority and women-owned businesses that got state procurement from about 3% to about 13% in the time that that I was there. And I think I was um, proud of the fact that during the recession, we attacked it first. We... um, uh, never had a downgraded credit rating or anything. And by the time uh, Governor Cuomo came in, and he said this on his first day, he had another $10 billion to reconcile, and then he could really start governing and, and putting resources where we needed them. And just those comments from him uh, on the first day in his inauguration speech uh, made me feel
2: proud. Governor David Patterson. The Reverend and I are great admirers of yours. We often talk about you because you're a straightforward guy, sincere, uh, serious, funny. Uh, you have so many great qualities, and we are privileged to uh, to be your friends. So uh, look forward to sharing many more uh, celebrations of life with you. I was at your wedding, uh, and I'm I— I'm hoping— That the
4: two of you would uh, come and have dinner with my wife and me one night and say these same things? I'd like her to hear that.
1: (laughs) Governor, I I was surprised just now because uh, the rabbi and I do talk about you, but what he said are the things that I say about you. (laughs) Uh, I was quite surprised that he tried to take credit for it. But we'll take you up on that dinner, absolutely, Governor.
2: And and, Thank the Rev, you so much. and the Rev picks it's up the check. Uh, okay. <laughs>
3: <Yeah. laughs> Please.
1: Governor David Patterson, you're listening to seventy seven WABC The Rev and the Rabbi. We'll be right back.
3: Sinai Chapels provides compassionate care to New York's Jewish community. Conveniently located in Fresh Meadows, Queens, every funeral detail is handled by an attentive professional staff, according to each family's personal and religious preferences. Sinai staff is at the chapel for you, 24 hours, 7 days a week. Sinai Chapels is committed to your health and safety and offers carefully planned and socially distanced services at their modern chapel or area cemeteries. Sinai has developed Zoom programs for live stream services, shiva, and consultation. Sinai Chapels offers pre-need plans to relieve families of making arrangements at a difficult time. Sinai's pre-need plans offer savings and are 100% government-backed. For more information, please call Sinai Chapels or visit JewishFunerals.com. That's JewishFunerals.com. Sinai Chapels in Fresh Meadows, Queens, providing compassionate care for four generations.
0: Reverend A.R. Bernard, Rabbi Joseph Potasnik, where faith matters. The Rev and the Rabbi, 77 W.A.B.C. Welcome back. I'm
2: Rabbi Joseph Potasnik. And I'm Reverend A.R. Bernard. Reverend, I I always enjoy talking to him and other people who speak in a very forthright yet calm fashion. Uh, they don't look to belittle, they don't look to put down, they just look to tell it as they as they see it. But at the same time, they want to hear what you have to say. And to me, those are important ingredients of life. Too much yelling, too much screaming at the other, too much insulting the person. Um, And that, to me, violates our traditions as well. You know, uh, things have
1: changed in our society, unfortunately. Uh, People want to be entertained. You know, um, historian uh, Warren Sussman, he he said that we've moved from a production-oriented culture to a Mm consumption-oriented culture. The former demanded character; the latter demands personality. So instead of values of hard work and and thrift and courage and uh, all of that, you know, it's now about personality. It's now about likes. Uh, It's 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 and we become a consumer uh, society, which makes or forces us to be entertainers. We want our news as entertainment, our, our presidents as entertainers, uh, our our preachers as entertainers. You
2: know, I think back to Moses. Here was someone who had illustrious... Wait, 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 wait. Did you say you think back to Moses? I knew you were older than you, can tell you. <laughs> I didn't say which Moses. Uh, yeah, okay, okay, you, you know. got me. Now, but I think back to, you know, Moses who led the people out of Egypt to the Promised Land, but didn't enter the Promised Land. And the question always arises... What is it that he did or didn't do that disqualified him from fulfilling his his dream, walking to the promised land? You know, they talk about striking a rock. Now, that doesn't seem like a serious sin, given all that you were able to perform during a lifetime. And I think when you look at the final episode, what really was the defining moment was when Moses referred to the people as fools. Here he was. He put up a lot. They disagreed. But at one point, you know, after the striking of the rock, he called them fools. That At that moment, he was not speaking to them as a leader. He was reacting purely out of emotion, out of frustration. And therefore, his time had come to an end in terms of leading the people. And I look at what goes on today. The name calling and social media has enhanced you know, uh, that ability to insult people. Because you can say anything you want. There's no price to be paid. You don't have to be factually correct. But people who just continue to put down people, you know, are the most miserable people in the world, if I could paraphrase uh, Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand's song, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we we got to at some point reach a place where we can really be civil uh, and yet not, you know, relinquish our position. You know, you're
1: absolutely right. I, and that's, you gave me a good sermon. I appreciate that. Thank I you. like that. Thank you. You know, uh, <laughs> Jesus said, you know, it, it's, you stand in judgment when you call your brother a fool. And that text has been a, a very mysterious text because of the gravity with which Jesus placed, you know, that Jesus placed on just simply calling him a fool. But the way you have framed Moses doing the same thing, uh, yeah, it is dehumanizing, it is belittling people, which changes how you interact with them. Because if you think less of them, you will treat them as less. And and, and and that's what the whole George Floyd thing was about, all right? It was wanting people to understand that this man, regardless of what he's done in the past, he's, he's still a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that struck me early in the in, 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 in Book of Genesis is here you have Cain kills his brother. He's a murderer. He kills his brother Abel and he's being banned from the presence of God. And he complains because he's afraid that whoever finds him is, is going to kill him. Yep. And God puts a mark on him to protect him, even though he is guilty of a heinous crime of murder. You know, so how do we read that? How do we look at that? Do we say, well, Maybe God is upholding the life and dignity of the human person in spite of their guilt, in
2: spite of their actions. Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, uh, I remember the question was also asked in Jewish tradition. Why didn't Cain argue with God and say, why are you condemning me? Uh, there's no commandment that says you can't kill your brother. How would I know that what I did was wrong? And the answer is, instinctually, you should know. That it was wrong. You don't need a commandment to tell you it's wrong. You should know, uh, as a you know child of God, as a creature of God, that that is just uh, the wrong thing to do. Um, and you know that that mark of Cain is something that, uh, you know, it it follows you. your the the lesson is also your behavior follows you. Uh, your report card is public. Uh, you said something powerful right there.
1: Even without a commandment, we have a conscience that sensitizes us, that judges our actions according to a moral standard, a higher moral standard that is present in every Mm -hmm. human heart. That's very, very good, Rabbi. There was no
2: formal official commandment, thou shalt not kill. You're right. And and frankly, uh, Chauvin should have known, he should have known instinctually. That yeah. you don't sit on someone's neck like that. You just don't but, do it. Yeah. And that's you know, you don't, you don't even with training. You don't need to do that. It's wrong. Uh, yeah. and, and sadly for, for Floyd. And look, Chauvin has destroyed his life. Uh, that that that, and that his family, his loved ones. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Nobody wins, really. At the end of the day, no. there are no winners with things like this.
2: All but, right. It was I have, a great I, conversation. Uh, yeah, and always a pleasure to uh, be with the governor, Governor David Patterson, who he brings much to the table uh, and has done much during his lifetime and continues uh, to enrich uh, the lives of this people of this city and the state. Next Absolutely. week. Yeah, great being with you, Rabbi. Oh, always and, good to uh, be with we'll you. We'll do this again next time. I'm willing. If God is willing, I'm willing. I'm willing. (laughs) I think we've got (laughs) a quorum here.
1: Until next time, right here on 77 WABC, the Rev and the Rabbi. Amen. God bless. Bye-bye.